Welcome to the JetRails podcast, supporting you through the airwaves with information about website and e-commerce technology and strategies from design and development to security, marketing, conversion rate optimization, and web hosting. We bring you insights from industry leaders and experts hosted, edited, and published by me, Robert Rand, your friendly neighborhood tech ambassador. Hi, and welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. I'm Robert. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the next generation of software workflows. Uh, it, it may sound simple. It may sound uh, uh, obvious. Um, but if I've learned anything in, in my many, many, many years in the industry, it's anything but simple. Uh, and it is one of the linchpins, certainly within e-commerce and related industries, uh, we've talked on the podcast before about omni-channel and unified commerce and uh, multi-channel integration. And, and really, uh, for consumer expectations today, uh, it's huge. So we're going to take a different look at it today. Uh, I'm joined by a couple of industry experts. Uh, with no further ado, uh, some introductions are in order. Uh, Ramesh, would you uh, do the honor of getting us started with that? Uh, sure. Thanks, Robert. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, so my name is Ramesh Cook. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at uh, Lisi Consulting. I'm also one of the founding members, so I'm employee number 1.3, if you want to, if you want to count it like that. And uh, I'm originally from uh, London, England, uh, but I'm first generation, so my parents are from Sri Lanka. Uh, so when I was growing up, I grew up in uh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, and, and the UK, and spent my formative career in the UK and primary Europe before I moved to the States in about 2006. And so been in this industry for a while and had uh, been privileged enough to see it from different industries and really different cultures and different countries. And so it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting journey to date and uh, yeah, looking forward to talking today. Fantastic. And uh, our other guest, Nate, would you do the honor of introducing yourself? Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm Nate Werbaum. Uh, I work at Wipato. I've been there for about three years and I've gotten a chance to, in that time, kind of see the product and the company grow from, I think it was about 38 people when I started to over 300 now. So it's about 10x growth in three years, right? So significant evolving organization, a lot of stuff moving around. At the same time, I've gotten to learn a lot and um, yeah, excited to kind of share some of that with you guys today. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of our industry is things move quickly and we learn on the job. <laughs> uh, that there is no perfect course uh, for how, how to do everything right in today's modern technology stack in e-commerce or digital marketing or multi-channel integration, that the needle is always moving. The technology is, uh, is improving that by the time you finish your, your, your coursework in uh, college or in, in a university um, and get out there in the real world and, and get hired, <laughs> there's already uh, a whole new level um, uh, of tech that's already hitting the market. Um, and, you know, so I, I'm going to circle back to one of my favorite questions. I always, uh, well, this is, I think why I started podcast. So I could get to ask this question. Um, I would love to hear how these two companies came by their names, because typically we find that there's a fun story or, or, or some interesting tidbit that we get from that. Uh, I'll, I'll flip the order this time. Nate, would you happen to know how Workato <laughs> came to that particular name? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of funny, actually. And, and I'm glad you asked because most of the people that talk to us the first time they say Workato or Workato or 
something along those lines, right? Or they think we're related to Marquette, right? Um, you could think of it in a similar in a similar light. So Orkato, work, auto, work, automation, right? So it kind of makes sense. It's it's a Silicon Valley name, but um, pretty straightforward, actually. Although if it was going to be automation, I think there should be a U in there. So um, I, I might call shenanigans, but <laughs> but I pronounced it properly without trying. So, you know, I, I think you still win on that. <laughs> exactly. And uh, Ramesh, what can you tell us about uh, Lisi Consulting and um, how your company came to its name? Uh, so equally, equally funny story. Um, so Lisi is Greek for solution. And so that was the original intent. But when we first, uh, in the rush to uh, register the domain and brand the name and, you know, all these fun things as you're starting a company, uh, we forgot to put the uh, Greek apostrophe or the Y. And so we get called Lisi, we get called Lisi. And so over the last couple of years, we've had several conversations whether we should either rebrand or change the name or do certain things because as Nate mentioned, people tend to pronounce it two or three different ways. And we've actually held off because we actually, we've actually found it's actually a good, um, it's a great story just like this when clients say, how do you pronounce your name? And we kind of get into the conversation. It's actually, it's a good reference point. It's something for them to remember us by because they remember the conversation. They may not remember the content of the conversation, <laughs> but they remember, oh, those are the guys whose names we can't pronounce. Oh yeah, I, re I remember that conversation. So that's we, we, so we've funny. kept it, but, uh, but that's, I, that's the background. I would not have gone in my head to the, the fact that that was uh, coming from Greek. I would have assumed it was some kind of uh, uh, initials or something to that extent. So that's, um, that's pretty interesting. And of course, there's something a little awry, I suppose. I, I have some of the same feelings sometimes with jet rails where I, in my spelling, um, typically capitalize uh, the R mm -hmm. so that it's read almost like two words, jet rails, because mm -hmm. as much as I don't really understand how you can read it differently, people do. If you leave uh, the R lowercase that it Chitrails? Like, no. <laughs> yeah, we've, uh, yeah, we've actually just done a rebranding and the marketing company came back and put L-Y-S-I all in caps. And the first call we were on, they were like, so L-Y-S-I. We were like, no, no, guys, it's Lisi. It's, it's not all caps. <laughs> so, so there you go. This is really what it takes to start a business. You have to come up with a name. You have to get it wrong in some way so that there's a good story yeah. to tell. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I appreciate some of that, that background and, um, you know, I, I, in doing my homework, I know that Workado has been around for a while now and, you know, that's, that's some huge growth, Nate, um, 2013, the company started, what was the strategy for entering the market? Because I, I've, played a, a role in multi-channel integration for years, um, <laughs> certainly from uh, before Workato was started. So there's a lot of incumbents in the industry, companies like MuleSoft, Boomi, um, lots of uh, more bespoke players. What, what, were the, what was the leadership thinking when getting into this particular market? So that's a, it's a great story. Um, so, so basically, like the founders of, of Workato come from a background in integration auto automation, right? So, so actually, our co-founder BJ Tella, he actually 
co-founded Tibco, right? One of the original iPaaS platforms. Um, then he went on to help found Oracle Fusion Middleware and a bunch of our co-founders and C team also worked at those places with him, right? So when they went out to build Ricardo, they actually went out to build a automation tool and not an integration tool. So it's funny, it's actually, we land in the iPaaS quadrant, right? Integration platform as a service for enterprise clients, right? And we're a leader in that, that area. But the real value in Ricardo, in my mind, and where most of the clients are seeing a lot of value is all around what we're focused on today, which is workflow automation, right? Not just moving the data from point A to point B, but actually making it actionable when it gets there. So that's what Ricardo's strategy has been the whole time. It's like, let's make integrations more human-focused and task-focused and complete the entire workflow instead of making it data-focused and centric on things that don't necessarily actually move the needle for people. That's interesting. So don't just deliver the data from point A to point B, but uh, allow there to, to be some kind of <laughs> an end goal there as the data is being transformed or um, as something's being triggered in order for, for something to happen. Uh, yeah, so. exactly. And I mean, like, there's, there's a lot of other tools that move data, right? I mean, one of the reasons I brought Ramesh is because he's, he's had a lot of experience with a lot of these other tools as well. And what I think they've seen, right, as, as they've begun to partner, begun to partner with us um, more deeply is, well, I can let you tell, tell it yourself, but what I think they've seen is, is kind of that additional value that brings and kind of the, the holistic viewpoint that brings beyond just, hey, I need to connect these systems, right? That's not the view. Yeah. Well, Ramesh, now let's turn that upside down because he's put some words in your mouth that I, I think that we should really take him to task over. Um, <laughs> if you had to describe why uh, your agency is partnered with, with Workado and how that came about, I'm sure that there's an equally uh, good story there. What drew you to this particular company and, and these particular types of solutions as opposed to things that you and I might have uh, worked with earlier in our careers? Um, so honestly, I first heard about Vocato at a industry conference, ooh, I'm going to say five or six years ago. Uh, Marcus Zinn uh, was presenting a use case, and some of the things they were talking about opened my eyes just in terms of exactly what Nate was talking about around business process workflow automation, not the data automation side of it. So a simple use case they were talking about was, hey, a lot of the times you get into these companies and the executive levels don't necessarily want to log into all these different systems to approve purchase orders and do some of the things that need to be done. The only time they have to, they, they'll have to log in once a month and that's to approve HR time cards or, or things of that nature. And invariably, they don't remember the password. They don't remember what screen to click on because they go in once a month or once a week. And so typically, from a security nightmare perspective, the admin's the person actually doing a login a lot of the time. And so one of the things uh, Vocato had were presenting at the conference was they had a front-end uh, integration point like with a Slack or a, or a chat feature or something that you know, your senior manager is always used to looking at. And so what they do is they trigger a uh, purchase order approval flow, for example, in the back end when it's needed, it just pings Slack and the uh, CFO gets a message on Slack saying, hey, here's a purchase order for you to approve. He clicks on it. It does, it does single sign-on in the back end, does the automation and the approval and everything else, comes back in and gives him the updated details. He never has to log into 
the backend uh, financial system, for example, if he doesn't need to. Things of that nature where it just made the, the process and the integration of that business process much simpler and much more user-friendly, if for want of a better word, uh, was just, I found fascinating because I hadn't come across any companies who were looking at it from that perspective. Everybody kept talking about technology automation and simplifying your technology stack, which is great. But this this took it to like one level above that as well. You know, I and I think sometimes we take for granted just how valuable um, these automations and integrations can be. Um, I, I was just chatting internally as a team. You know, we're big users of Slack and, and big proponents of it. Uh, and I, I've got a few coworkers that consistently don't keep up with our social media. And so now, you know, the next goal was, well, why aren't we pulling that in into Slack where they're checking various channels throughout the day and the week? And um, they'll at least, you know, thumb through it, <laughs> uh, you know, in relative terms um, and be keeping better up to date that way. You know, why do we need to be in so many different places? And obviously you can trigger certain things then within Slack and have other uh, other actionables. But, um, you know, our most valuable commodity is time. So you know, when you really get down to it, you know, that might seem trivial. Um, the value of it could actually be really high. But when you get into arenas like e-commerce and you're doing things at scale, uh, this is a whole, you know, it, it's not optional anymore. Um, you really can't continue to grow and scale without um, having so, some of these things at play, at least not competitively. Um, so before I get to, just, to, yeah. It's not just the time savings there too. A lot of people think about automation as like, all right, how much time am I going to save? Right? Or what man hours am I going to replace? Right? But the reality is that it's also about you know data quality and cleanliness, right? Like, hey, is a human going to make mistakes? Yes, they are. They're human, right? Is an automation going to make mistakes? Probably not. And when it does, right, can it correct itself? Probably, right? So if we're able to not only reduce the amount of effort people need to spend, but then also reduce monitoring and make it really easy for people to actually go in and understand everything that's happened um, without diving into every single system, like Ramesh was saying, mm -hmm. um, it's very well. And in some cases, things can be much more timely and things can happen that would never happen if you were waiting for someone to do it manually. So someone places an order on a site and there can be a workflow uh, potentially in my head where they're going to get follow-ups about replenishment. They're going to get follow-ups from a review system about leaving a review. Um, there's lots of things happening and they have to be timed well uh, and they, they have to be done consistently. And that's not really intended to, to be done by a person. And you can use a lot of disparate systems to make a lot of that happen. But, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it, if you want to do it well, um, you do need to get it into more concrete workflows and not just, you know, the, the basic uh, off the shelf. Um, so you know, I'm going to go backwards a, a little bit, though, because, you know, I'm still in 2013, apparently. Uh, <laughs> um, so the company saw uh, at Workato some opportunity there um, to tackle the a market that wasn't necessarily as saturated because this was a different offering than uh, than the majority of of where the industry was at at the time. How has the landscape changed since? And you know, what does it look like now? What um, 
you know, and even to the point, I'll, I'll make this a compound question. <laughs> what? Uh, just to trip you up, really, Nate. That's at this point. That's my goal for the rest of the episode. Uh, <laughs> what? What type of software and you know workflows are, are people really working on today? Because I imagine that in 2013 it was more basic. It was an earlier time, and and by now they've built and built and built, and some of these could be pretty uh, complex. So, what has some of that evolution looked like? Um, in the last seven or so years? And that's, a, that's another great question. So I think it's really interesting um, because you look at tools out there. So there's another tool, right? Very SMB focused. Almost everyone in the market has heard of it now. It's a tool called Zapier, right? A lot of people go with Zapier and then they graduate to a Locato at some point, right? But when we first started, we were pretty basic. So we were, you know, our capabilities were a bit above a Zapier, right? So trying to get usable, but you know, landing in these kind of small spaces, we, weren't, we didn't have a lot of complexity, kind of like you mentioned, right? Um, and we didn't really understand the value that this could bring, and neither did our clients, of course. Um, so, you know, as we started to get more clients, they started to build more. And now we're seeing significant use cases, right? Things that are truly game-changing. Um, good example, client I can't say the name of, but it's a multi-billion dollar company, not multinational company. They run their entire RMA process off of Workata, right? They pipe uh, 16 systems into Zendesk, right? Any, any channel, any angry request that comes in comes right to the agent from anywhere, right? If they want to track anything, they can do that. They can ping UPS, they can create a new shipment, they can see if there's replacement parts, they can you know, see what their, uh, if these guys are a good customer or bad customer from their ERP, they can see everything they need to do to know about this client and they can execute on solving and resolving these tickets in real time from just the Zendesk interface, right? And this is not just, you know, saving the agent's time, but it's also making people much happier because they're able to resolve these things nice and quickly and they're able to give them answers in 30 seconds on the phone or over chat or on Instagram or wherever they are. Um, and then you've got like these, these big, like you talked about e-commerce, right? So beyond, beyond just support, right? There's these massive e-commerce use cases where, Hey, I have not only this large inventory of items, but I have like this disparate system with the listings of these items and they're constantly in flux, right? I've got item quantities changing. I've got prices changing. I might even have descriptions, colors, everything changing, right? And I need to put those back and forth in real time, but I also need to be able to have an understanding when there's orders created so I can deduct from my amount or I, and get a notification maybe to go order more, right? Um, there are an uh, insane number of automations in the, the e-commerce space. Um, and I know that Ramesh, you've kind of seen a lot around the EDI space as well. That's really interesting. Same with the warehouse management e-commerce piece. Um, yeah. So, what have you? Been, I guess, like, pass it over to you. What have, What have you been doing with, uh, with some of the innovations? So, I think yes. It's, it's thanks, Nate. <laughs> it's it's been fascinating. So, we've seen a lot of. If you think of it from a pure lifecycle perspective, Robert, we've seen a lot of scenarios where client starts off as a pure B two C e commerce uh, shop, and then they, they get like a Walmart or an Amazon or a, or a large B two B traditional retailer come on board. And they suddenly have to discover EDI integration, which was never part of their original, you know, wheelhouse. Sure, they, they, they want to drop ship, uh, you know, orders that they they want retailers and 
you know, I'll call them a form of, of resellers to be able to not warehouse the goods, but to say, oh, you know, we got another order for that treadmill, ship one out right to this address. <laughs> no middlemen required in the uh, in the warehousing, uh, you know, just ship it right from the manufacturer or what have you. Sure. Exactly. So it's careful what you wish for when you when you're when you're you know when you're when you're branding a successful business. If you suddenly get your your large B two B retailer suddenly come on board, then you've suddenly got a whole new technology platform, technology stack you got to worry about. And then, by the way, you might you might have at the same time started your own stores or th- like point of sale stores and things of that nature. So, to me, you know, to when we look at it from a pure omni channel perspective, you've got online e-commerce, you've got your B2B EDI retailers, and you've got own stores. So really, as a company, number one, two, two sides, and that is great, but you have two sides to every coin, right? As a company, how do you, from a technology perspective, how do you make sure that it all kind of seamlessly talks to each other? So it shouldn't really matter whether my orders are coming from my EDI channel or my e-commerce channel. I should see it all in one place. Finances should happen. Inventory should happen, as Nate was saying earlier should all happen in one place and be seamless as a company. But on the other side, as a customer or a consumer, I should really have a seamless experience as well. It shouldn't matter. I shouldn't really have one experience when I go to your store versus a separate, completely different, independent experience when I go out to shop on your online store, for example. Absolutely. And, you know, this gets messy again, you know, at scale. So if you're a brand and you're allowing, uh, you know, these uh, retailers to submit orders to your warehouse um, for one-off orders, basically purchase orders that you'll you'll pay for the goods at your wholesale rate, but it should just ship right to the consumer. In a lot of cases, those brands were only selling wholesale. They were only selling to distributors and to, to retailers, yep. not to end users, not direct to consumer. And now what happens when you've got orders coming from 100 places for one-off items when you're used to filling trucks? Um, yep. how do you prioritize? How do you, you know, it really does need to all flow and you need information to get back to the, to the merchant of record, whoever sold the goods, because if the tracking information doesn't get back there, the customer doesn't know that the order shipped, they can't try. Everybody's miserable. Um, so this exactly. stuff breaks down so easily, so quickly at scale where, yeah, if you're doing this with one or two, sure, you could probably do some of it manually, probably don't want to, but you know, you're, you're going to proof a concept still. Uh, it's a pilot program. But once you get past that. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. And one of the things I think to Nate's point about Workato is if you bring in something like a Workato, you because a lot of the a lot of the times when you're having these technology integration and architecture conversations with businesses, they are completely focused on the opportunity in front of them. Oh, my God, I've got Walmart. I need to solve for that. Well, that's great. But, you know, let's talk about 12 months from now, where you're going to be, five years from now, where you're going to be. And let's put in something that kind of not just scales, but also builds these multi-channel, seamless integration platforms that you may need because your, you know, your, your marketing team has, dis- has discussed with you opening your own stores in, in two years' time, for example, or, or, or whatever that case looks like, for example. It's, yeah. it's having those conversations, and, but making that decision today versus having to rip and replace in three years' time. Yeah. And that's exactly it. That's it. I mean, we see so many companies that come to us and they're like, okay, cool. Is Ricardo a fit for the single integration, right? If you come to me and ask if Ricardo a fit for a single integration, most of the time I'm going to tell you no, right? Hmm. But what Ricardo is doing, right, is, is we know that as an organization, you're going to buy more software. You know, 
even if you're not growing as a company, you're going to end up buying more software. There's more and more software to solve more and more problems, right? So what do you do? You're going to need to integrate that software. It's not going to talk, right? And that's going to be a continuous problem. So do you solve that holistically? Do you go out and invest in something like Mercado, invest in something else in the market, or do you take it each as one unit, one business case, right? And we all know, right? Solving at scale is better, right? So solving integrations at scale with one platform that can solve your integration problems, all of them, right? Yeah, well, uh, how many vendors do you want to manage in terms of technical debt? How many integrations do you to your different? So let's say your your e-commerce website, uh, you know, dev team, um, whatever agency or, or group of developers you've got in-house or external, or um, do they really want to be managing 10 different APIs and flat file integrations mm-hmm. and things with different mm-hmm. systems? Well, no, not not really. That's uh, that's adding complexity. It's it's adding um, maintenance and long-term expense. And, you know, I, I think part of what's interesting to me is that this is always a challenge for everyone, um, it, it, at every s- juncture. So I was talking about brands and manufacturers before, but it's equally a problem, um, without automation, uh, and the right workflows for the e-commerce merchant themselves, because, you know, what happens when now you say for your site, look, you know, we carry, um, let's say you're, you're a jeweler and you carry, you know, 100 Invicta watches, but there's a catalog out there at 3,000 um, or however many, you know, 10,000. I don't know how many they're making these days. Uh, and you, you know, so you want to make the full catalog available through your website. Great. Um, but when you do that for enough different brands, enough different uh, suppliers, you know, how quickly are you going to get that purchase order to them? And does the customer really want to lose time in receiving their order? Customers want everything yesterday. <laughs> you know, do they want to wait for you to get that right with the supplier? Do they just want, you know, the order to go right where it needs to go and get shipped and, you know, get notified? And um, so it, you know, equally important, I think, for every uh, every link in the chain within, the, you know, within modern industry, um, it, you know, I wonder, is it interesting? And obviously, you know, Ramesh, your, your team is providing managed service to help set these things up and, um, you know, manage, maintain, improve, optimize, you know, whatever's needed over time to continue to, to keep these things really, uh, working properly. I'll start off with our, is there an interesting breakdown, Nate, between, self-users and folks that use an intermediary uh, to manage? Because I imagine that, that some start self-service or some just happen to have, you know, teams of developers and, and IT folks and what have you in-house, uh, that, that there are some that will uh, skip bringing in the experts that use the software all day long and, and they'll learn it themselves. Is there, is, does the, the overall use lean one way or the other? And has that changed over time? Yeah, yeah, no, that's another question. Um, so, well, you know, I mean, they they pay me the big bucks for a reason here. So, uh. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I think, yeah, it, it, yes, there is definitely. Um, I think, as far as it goes, um, yeah. Well, so, so there's there certainly is right, and I think like when I was talking about initially explaining what Ricardo does. I was maybe a little bit remiss because the other thing about Ricardo does, right? Automation platform. The other goal is to make this super usable. So I haven't even mentioned it, but we're low code, no code, right? So you can actually build 
almost every integration in Rokata's platform without coding at all, right? So what this means is not only do I reduce the technical debt, but I also don't have to have a whole bunch of people who know a Workday API or know an SAP API or know how these systems work inter like on an API level. So your, your system is already uh, tunneled into these APIs. And so basically, it's just the workflows in between that are getting worked. And there's some kind of graphical user interface, some so, some kind of, uh, um, you know, I don't know, is it drag and drop for some of it? Is it all like, you know, uh, menus and drop downs, uh, creating rules and yeah. things? What is the what does the process look like? Yeah, so it's it is it's drag and drop. Um, we pick up all the custom objects as soon as we connect to any system and you can map them instantly in a visual manner. You can even transform them without coding anything. Um, you can do things like build APIs and create API management layers without coding at all. Right? This is huge for e-commerce. So especially on the e-commerce side, we see a lot of this API management stuff blowing up and we could spend an entire session on just API management. So I won't go into oh, why. Nate, don't tease me. I mean, really. That, you know, <laughs> our listeners know that I could geek out on that. but Yeah, so... <laughs> So, so, I mean, API management, right? We're seeing this entire, like the scope of API management grow heavily in the e-commerce space. And that's actually one of our fastest growing areas in Mercado because typically what it looks like to build out an API is I need an expert that knows how to build out APIs on both sides. I need someone to build out that API, maintain the connectivity and monitor that, right? If it goes down, you're kind of hosed, right? Um, Mercado, right? You can build all those APIs without coding, right? You can build in monitoring and handling errors very easily, logically, all again without coding. And you can even build in restrictions around how often it can be accessed, who can access it, security level stuff. So what we're looking at when we're exposing data, right, on an API level is can we get DDoS attacked, right? Okay, cool. We need to put some stuff in place. Does it have to have authentication, right? Do we have to have certain users only be able to sign in? Do certain users need to be able to pull some data? and others different data, right? So maybe if I'm a vendor and I need to expose, instead of exposing via EDI, right, my inventory, I'm actually gonna expose all my orders via an API, and that's gonna go directly to my 3PL warehouse, right? And they're gonna use that to pick up everything that's coming out of me. But they're not gonna get the payment amount from the clients, they're not gonna get the other things that they don't wanna pass over. So building API management allows you to pass over just the data that matters in a secure way, and a narrow focus, and you can kind of build these and consume them extremely fast with Locato because it's no code, no code. Yeah. And so I, going back to the question, sorry, yeah. too many, sorry yeah. going back, tie all the way back. So we do see this mix, right? And it's actually growing in, in terms of mix with partners. So we're seeing more and more partners grow in the ecosystem. And typically you might think like, oh, it's because Locato is getting really complex. But in reality is you got people like Ramesh who's been building EDI and 3PL and e-commerce for years, right? They've got the expertise there to understand what the logic needs to look like. And in reality, the most value like you can bring someone is helping to understand what's the best practice to do this, right? How do I do this so it's not going to be crazy to maintain? So it's not going to be crazy to iterate. So it's going to be scalable, right? Um, you need someone like Ramesh to come in and give that advice. So getting started with Ricardo, right? Fantastic. You can go do it yourself. Even doing a lot with Ricardo, if you've got a whole team internally, like we have enterprises, they build a whole team around it, they just do it themselves. But if you're a smaller organization, or if you just don't have the expertise, or don't want to build up that expertise, you can bring in someone like Ramesh, and they'll either advise or they'll build out the whole thing for you. Right? Yeah, I, I imagine in a lot of cases, that's going to be a lot of a lot faster and, and a lot easier than 
going out there and, and hiring this team and putting them on the payroll that bringing in experts that already know what what they're doing. And, you know, and I would agree that a lot of these software endpoints, they're complex themselves. They're not used the same way. So when we talk about an e-commerce software like Magento, uh, I always refer to, to, to the sites as snowflakes that no two are exactly the same. And I think the same, there are so many ERPs out there, enterprise resource planning software platforms and how one is deployed versus another. I mean, you can spend an exorbitant amount of money deploying even something that's SaaS, that software as a service in the cloud, like, um, uh, like NetSuite. Um, and tailoring it to your business. So how you need, what you need to trigger and happen and when and how I imagine is, is different. I mean, Ramesh, what are some of the most uh, common things that you run into? And is some of it, is some of it uh, ongoing maintenance as these APIs get updated as, as you know, work processes change? Because, uh, you know, businesses are always changing that I, I imagine that these workflows at some point uh, need the dust to <laughs> wipe down a little uh, and need to be freshened up. Um, it's probably less around that. I, I should probably rewind a little bit. So when when we started the company, we actually started as ERP system uh, implementation teams, basically. And then we found a niche in the integration space, especially if it like, you know, medium-sized companies, as Nate was saying. And so what we are able to now, because we started in ERP and now we are in e-commerce and integration, most most companies, including e-commerce companies, have some sort of back-end financial system, whether it's something small or a full-grown ERP, as we were talking about, Robert. So what we can now do is, because we have that expertise on the ERP side of the house, we can come in and talk about integration and start asking conversations of how your back-end systems are meant to be handling this data. And by the way, as we talk to you, we are going to emphasize, well, this is best practice in your industry. How, you know, This is typically how you'd set up your financial system or your ERP system to handle like a a sales order coming from your from your Shopify website or what have you. And that's usually where we get into more conversations because typically most companies who've you know started on one side and now moving into e-commerce or EDI have when they first set it up, they didn't think about that, right? And so now now you have to rewind a little bit. And so the value we add is around we understand what you're doing in ERP. So we are building your integration, but we're going to ask you a lot of very pointed questions around how you're managing your processes in your backend systems. And that usually leads to a lot more conversation. And that's typically one of the areas we, we kind of add add a little bit more value, I'd say. But uh, but to your, to your original question, I guess, Robert, around uh, APIs, it's it's less, less around the cleanup, it's more around growth. And so companies, returning customers who come back to us, the, retur- the re- reoccurring work, if you like, isn't so much about, hey, we need to dust off this API. It's more around of, I'm opening another store. I am branching into Europe. I'm doing something different. I now mm-hmm. need to do VAT tax calculations through my integration and not just you know US sales taxes, for example. That's typically where we have a lot more reoccurring business and it's less around the API blew up because we haven't touched yeah. it for five years. Yeah, I mean, I, I find there are some systems that'll, uh, and I've seen some of them in the last few years, update, for instance, around the e-commerce systems being able to natively support multi-location inventory, you know, inventory across multiple mm-hmm. stores or warehouses. But then, you know, you wind up with folks that either they all they weren't using a feature before, or they didn't think to integrate it before, or the APIs uh, didn't exist before. Whatever it might be for things like gift cards, reward points, things that yep. would rec- that are not the same standard, uh, you know, data that would require. 
um, some different integration uh, and different workflows. And so things evolve. And I think that's always important that whenever I see someone that goes to create some kind of a one-off unmanaged uh, integration, I always worry um, the the typical story that you you hear is that some they got somebody to build it, um, mm. you know, a, a one off person. That person is long gone when it needs when it's really falling apart. Uh, it, it isn't maintained, uh, and, you know. So it, it's interesting, you know. And, and talking about how things can back back to how they change over time. Uh, I'll ask both of you: Have you seen integrations that might have been popular? you know, a few years back that have sort of fallen by the wayside. I know that there's a lot of software that really lives on <laughs> longer than any of us uh, in some cases would would, uh, would recommend or uh, anticipate sometimes not for the not for worse. Um, but um, sometimes we're surprised by things that come and go in, in the tech world. Uh, have you noticed any interesting trends where something that was really in, in high demand, you know, when were earlier in your partnership or when Workata was getting started um, that really just, you know, in just a few short years, things have come and gone. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good question. I, I actually, I'm going to dial it back just like Ramesh just did um, real quick, because I want to touch on the maintenance thing, because I think that's actually a really important thing with Workata because building and maintaining these integrations were pretty much, custom code or any other iPaaS tool going to be very difficult, right? And again, Picado has been really smart at the way they built this. At least I think they've been really smart and it's just me because I work there. But uh, basically we maintain all the integration connectivity. So we, we pre-built connectors. We maintain all those connectors through partnership. We never have to update a version, right? We built our connectors in a way that they understand all the custom objects. When you update or add a custom object, we update and add a custom object. So it's, you can just map to it, right? The other thing is, how do you iterate, right? With Rocado, right, it's all in plain English. You can understand exactly what the last guy built, what it looks like. You don't need a bunch of comments and notes to figure it out, right? You know what he's built, and you can add a step, move a step, change a, change a logic flow, right? So Rocado is definitely built around that whole... Nate, that's just mean. You're just trying to put developers out of work, okay? You're trying to take our jobs. That's... Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I see what's going on here now. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't, wasn't there wasn't there a South Park episode around this? <laughs> yes, but if I really start going down that rabbit hole, um, this episode, I don't know if it's ever going to see the light of day. But but Nate, you know, I, I I know that you have to say good things there. If you'll say something bad about Workato, I will send you a really nice Jet Rails hat. I mean, so just keep that in mind as we keep going. So fair enough, fair enough. All right, so I think like. Like the things that we don't see as much anymore, right? And I think this is partially a product of us moving out market. But I mean, we don't see a lot of the smaller applications anymore. So we don't see basic use cases. Um, we see some people still using Google Sheets, but a lot less often. We see people not using things like HubSpot and, and uh, Instagram as much. And we're using like, you know, Google Ads and uh, Marketo instead of HubSpot, right? That kind of stuff. But I mean, in general, I don't, aside from the products that have been phased out, not too much. I mean, we still see clients using AS400, right? Mm -hmm. So do we. <laughs> 30, 30 something years old, right? Um, we got DB2 connectors. We've got connectors for systems that are extremely old because some people just 
don't want to move. Um, and every time you think one of these systems is dead, you will get a new opportunity for it. So I can't say there's anything that's gone away at all. I would I would just add one one um, more point to that, uh, Nate, which is we've noticed that there seems to be a much more much better emphasis or education by companies uh, as they are starting up, especially or going through a growth phase, where they understand that you know integrating your technology or making your backend systems talk with your e-commerce system is kind of going to be vital. It's not just throw it over the fence and worry about it later because the sales guy doesn't understand what's going on. Um, and so they spend a little bit more emphasis. So a great example is, you know, not that long ago, we'd see companies when they're starting out, especially would quite happily to your example, Net would use Zapier is, is probably pretty much the go-to tool. We're seeing a lot less of that. Even companies starting out are looking at something larger because they understand that, you know, the scalability is limited. You, error handling, maintenance, notifications, all that stuff is, isn't available out of the box. And so we are seeing a lot more companies engaging us to talk about, okay, we know it's going to cost more upfront, but what would be a good, you know, scalable slash budgetary model that we can start off with, knowing we're going to build into it, but we want to, we don't want to spend all that money upfront if we can help it. So from a cost perspective and scalability perspective, what makes more sense? And in some cases, it might be Zapier, but a lot of them come to us because they know what Zapier can and cannot do. And they want to look at what else is available in the industry. Well, and as you talk about complex integration and scaling, uh, error and exception handling is perhaps the most important part of any of this because <laughs> you know it, it falls apart really quickly. The uh, the integration itself is, in a lot of cases, less code. Le you know, it's it's not the hardest part. It's what happens when any number of things don't match right. So, for instance. For someone that's that's not familiar, if you uh, put something into a field, if a shopper puts something into a field that doesn't follow the the proper schema, that, that you know they put um, L, you know uh, special characters in a field that's not meant to have them, um, and that that piece of data won't neatly go into the system you're trying to automate it to uh, to flow into. Um, now what? What do you do? Uh, you know, or what happens when an API on the other side is failing because let's say, you know, you're on a SaaS platform for it and you're being throttled that uh, you're hitting <laughs> the API as much as you're allowed to and then some. And so it's timing out on you um, or there's some other issue. When do you retry and what do you do if it fails? And, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of cases where these things can happen. And you know, back to consumer expectations in e-commerce, consumer does not care about your technology issues. Mm -hmm. They expect you to, you know, not to lose their information, their order, any of that. Um, that is just a disaster waiting to happen. So I think that there's, uh, you know, that, that there, there's a lot to be said for different players in the market um, that can solve different needs in particular um, and that integrate with different systems that there are, some systems that I think for a particular integration, including some native integrations that make sense um, personally, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just going to say that Nate agrees with me that he's nodding off camera here to get him in trouble. But no, I, <laughs> I, I speaking of, I'm actually going to ask about one in particular that I, I've watched coming around um, Shopify in the e-commerce world really has been growing in the SMB market. Uh, very nicely, um, where others like Magento play much more heavily mid-market and, and enterprise. 
Um, Shopify has created some of their own workflow systems. Although, you know, I, I wonder from your perspective, uh, both of you, you know, is that comparable? Is that, you know, does that compete or is that really, um, you know, more siloed to what you need to do with Shopify as opposed to what you may need to do across all of your systems and sort of a hub and spoke model? How does how does that kind of evolution in the market um, play with how uh, how both of your teams do business and go to market and support uh, different ecosystems? I, yeah, I'll, I'll go first. I know Ramesh got something to say here too. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it, it's, first off, like what you touched on, right? Like monitoring errors, like the complexity there, right? That's something, I mean, that would probably be the biggest problem in integration if you ask people. It's like, cool, I'm building an integration. How do I plan for the non-happy path, right? The, the fringe cases, right? And depending on what kind of integration you're building, it could be something that happens 0.1% of the time. It could be something that happens 5% of the time, right? And then you're talking about a significant number of orders or whatever that are hitting this fringe case, right? So again, with Wakala, we can build in ways to handle. Anytime you see a certain error, we're going to go call something else, a different automation that will go fix it, right? Um, but at the same time, like just to go back to your other question um, around native integrations, right? So we see native integrations everywhere, right? Almost every company now is building native integrations. And we think that's great. I mean, th there's a huge need for integration, right? The thing what we see with these integrations is that, that they're built for the generic, the generic instance, the vanilla instance, you might say, right? So custom objects, custom things you've built in, um, custom workflows that might be inside of that application might not mesh with the other applications you're connecting to, right? And then you may be either missing data quality, you might have to build a second integration to supplement, or you might have to do something else like CSV loads or something, or just ignore it, right? But then at the same time, um, there are some that are pretty good, right? Um, I mean, a lot of the vendors we work with, especially a lot of the ones that we start partnering with heavily, <laughs> notice this is an issue and start to build something, right? Um, we've seen it at many SaaS companies. It, it almost is never competitive. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of things that you can do with a basic integration, but it, there's a lot of things you can't do. Right. You can't do things in a logical manner. You can't necessarily combine data easily. Um, it's not easy to go build the connections into other systems. Great. The workflow works great when you're going internal in Zendesk, right? But when you go outside of Zendesk, well, you know, you might not know if the data had gotten there, right? It might not send a response, right? Cool. I sent the data. Who knows, right? Um, so like that's that's the kind of thing you can build in with Ricotta, like these checks, this monitoring, this whole thing. And and you know. To be frank, other tools as well. Yeah, and, and we tend, and yeah, kind of exactly what Nate said, we tend to approach it from a, because, you know, it's always about what the business or the client needs in that instance. And so it's typically around complexity, scalability, cost, and budget. It's, it's, it always comes up in conversation. So there's, a, we call it, there's entry point uh, middleware platforms. There's, you know, Things that are, I'd say, catered to the more complex scenarios that uh, Net and the Vocato team really specialize in. So, yeah, uh, a native Shopify type integration might suit your business. If if literally you have one Shopify store, you know, a handful of orders, nothing too complicated, and that's all you're going to do, great. 
But the minute you bring in, like, you know, you maybe add a store in Europe or a point of sale system, or maybe, heaven forbid, you Amazon turns up and wants to do EDI orders with you, then you're, then that that native integration kind of doesn't work anymore. And so it, it kind of comes back to that conversation. What, what can you, what do you want to do now? What can you afford to do? And that sometimes plays a larger part mm-hmm. than we like. Uh, we may say, you're, you're going to have a you're going to have trouble scaling this, but we understand that this is what you need to get off the ground, and that's that's a that's a perfectly reasonable conversation, and that's perfectly normal expectation, quite honestly. So, and and we are we are not a licensed reseller for anybody, so we we have open conversations with clients in terms of what technology platform really suits your needs. And maybe that's like a place that I can talk about. You know, you asked for like a little bit of a, a failure of Wakanda, right? And I would say this is a failure of the industry in general, right? But I'd say like. Being able to understand the value and automation is going to bring, very, very difficult, right? People ask for ROI all the time. We cannot give you an ROI. Sometimes people come back and they say, hey, we saved 60,000 hours this year. And you're like, holy cow. All right, we should be selling it for more, right? Other people come back and they're saving a couple of tasks a month, right? Who knows, right? But when you're going out to build automations, like, and you're going out with these big price tags initially, in some cases, right? Some cases it could be a lower price tag, but going out with a big, big, bigger price tag initially, you really have to like dive in to understand, okay, not only where are you today, but like what does your scale look like a year from now? And can we bridge that gap like cost-wise by amortizing it over a certain amount of time? Can we discount the first year to get you to the second year? How do we help you achieve ROI and see that, um, especially if you're a smaller business, right? Great. So basically, if they want, you know, a ramp up plan with your team that they, they should tell the, the sales team that, that Nate said, give them the, the, the Nate special. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, yeah. The $0 yeah. special all day. Yeah, totally. yeah. I'm doing everything <laughs> yeah, that yeah. I can to make sure that your team doesn't allow us to publish this episode. I don't know why it's a Friday. Um, <laughs> okay. I've almost broken into the dad jokes. I mean, earlier you said that you were going to be Frank and I almost started calling you Frank, but I held back for a couple of minutes. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, this is just how my day is going. Right. Uh, you, I'm having a lot of fun with this episode. I, I hope the listeners are enjoying it as much uh, <laughs> uh, after the fact as I am in the moment. But uh, we talked about pricing just there a couple of times. What, you know, and I know that's always uh, the elephant in the room. What kinds of ranges do people sometimes spend on this kind of thing? I imagine when we're talking, you were mentioning earlier, Nate, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar organizations that they might wind up with an outsized spend. And they're expecting that if they had to bring this in-house uh, and write all of the integration themselves, they have an idea of what that would look like. So, uh, you know, and, and all the workflows and main maintenance and all that. Um, but you know, for for someone that's not quite at that stage yet, <laughs> uh, where do people enter the market with platforms like Workado today? Yeah, um, and and it's a great question, right? And I think like that goes back to the whole question around like how do we help differentiate ourselves from those single point integrations and talk about the value we bring in terms of automating beyond that or doing monitoring or whatever it is, right? To justify, right? So, I mean, with Workado, you can get started for as low as 12K a year, right? $1,000 a month. Um, 
that goes up from there, right? It could be significantly larger, right? In the in the seven figure range, probably not for for anybody of of smaller than enterprise, right? Um, I've seen some very small businesses spend six figures with us, right? They're they're automating wall to wall. They're doing everything from HR onboarding to engineering to uh, sales and and lead management and e-commerce and everything, right? Um, same time, I've seen some enterprises spending, you know, $14,000 with us, right? They're, they're just doing something very, very basic and it's in one department and it's working for them, right? So the range well, is, is- If you think about the cost of a full-time employee with benefits and matching taxes and everything else, you know, 14 grand is a lot of money for you know, most people that I deal with, <laughs> but for, for a business that's got to lay out that, you know, and again, it's not just about, as we talked about earlier, human capital, but- um, meeting and exceeding customer expectations and cutting out errors and other things that are going to cost you money anyway. And, you know, so if it's hard to build an exact ROI model, I'm with you there, some kind of a, an exact justification. But I find uh, much like when we talk web hosting and, and what JetRails brings to the table, um, there's a piece of it that's about opportunity cost. There's a piece of it that's about risk analysis. And, you know, yeah, you could do something, you know, cheaper, but like, you know, we mainly host e-commerce sites, uh, you know, among other CMSs and custom applications and things. But when you have a security incident, um, saving those few dollars a month, did you know justice or when you can't get the support that you need or your, your site is running slow or uh, it can't scale to handle your traffic on Black Friday or whatever, you know, whatever those, those issues are, those hot button topics, the, the few dollars a month wasn't or, or a year wasn't really um, the crux of it. Um, you're damaging your brand. You're hurting your growth trajectory. You're hurting customer lifetime value. Um, so I, I'm with you there. And That's you great. touched on, on HR there. And I'm going to um, I was looking through some of the different workflows that your team offered. And I noticed one that had nothing to do with e-com, but I, I just thought it was pretty cool. There was a, a PTO approval bot. and you know, and I, I thought that was kind of, uh, you know, interesting. And so I want, do you have either of you any interesting workflows that you've run into or, or things that you, th you know, you just at face value, it's probably not what the average user thinks about when they think about um, these types of automations and these, these uh, are, you know, platforms like Workato, um, but the, that you think really, you know, just show the, the versatility of this kind of technology. I think there's two that I would like to touch on, and I'll let Ramesh go. Um, so the first one, first off, we love bots over here, right? If you look at iPaaS automation, we're the only iPaaS tool that has bots, like as a major part of our platform. So we have a tool called WorkBot, works in Workplace, Slack, Microsoft Teams. You can integrate any application with them, run approval processes, kind of like what Ramesh talked about earlier, right? You can also run notifications. You can create it into a whole deal desk or a whole service desk, um, basically reducing the number of systems your team has to enter, being able to create context and location and let them take action. Um, those are really, really cool. So whether it's HR onboarding, right? So there's an enterprise recently. Um, they had acquired another company, 20,000 new employees. They had to onboard all of them. Took about eight hours across the entire company, provisioning like equipment, getting them into the right software, getting them hired, letting their manager know, blah, 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 blah. Took about eight hours. Uh, they run the whole thing through Slack now. It takes two minutes per employee. They just type hire blank name. It goes and finds the person, does everything, asks them what apps. They click, click, click through it in Slack, and it's done. 
it's it's so it's saving them like it's six. 10 times faster, right? So it's, it's ridiculous. Um, I like that one personally. I've always yeah, found that yeah. that's, it's always such a, such a waste of resource when you're onboarding, because for most companies, it's not something that they do on a day-to-day basis. And so it's taking someone away from a normal workday uh, or multiple someone's uh, and it, it all, because it's taking people away, it's often a little discombobulated. Obviously there are plenty of you know, scaled teams that have HR, but then like you say, there's other, there's things that aren't about HR. They're about IT. They're about, you know, you need this software, you need access to these systems you need. So that's really interesting. I didn't catch that one. That's really cool. These go, these go very far too. Like, so again, right. Like we're kind of about making it actionable for people. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go to one other one in the bottle and I'm going to tell one other one that's different and then I'll go to the term match. Sorry. Cause I'm excited. Um, so the other one that I think is really interesting, um, and we're seeing like this is a lot of interest in this because of COVID, right? And because everybody's kind of no longer going to trade shows and cold calling isn't as effective. And we don't know when people have intent because we're not talking to them as much. Um, this is more to like a B2B side, but what we've seen is like tools like Sixth Sense or G2 Crowd. Okay, those are great. How do you use them? Right? So what we were able to do is say, okay, as soon as we see an intent action across any of these intent places, we're going to understand what that intent looks like, call in some list of leads, enrich that list of leads, find the right person who owns that account in Slack, send a notification that says, hey, this company that's in your target account list is looking at Workato for this and this. Do you want to add them to an ad campaign? You want to put them in an outreach sequence? You want to send them an email? And they can click into any of those from Slack, right? So not only do they not have to go run a report or look at an email or get a notification, they get a notification where they live and they take action as soon as they get it, right? And then it's gone and it goes on to the next thing they wanna do. So that again, like how do I make it actionable? Let people do what they need to do and move on. That's the power there. Um, and then like on, on the complete other side. So really cool. I think the big data stuff we're doing is really interesting. So uh, this company has a security software piece. They sell to consumers and B2B. Um, their B2B market, they need to understand when their customers have issues, but they need, need to understand as soon as possible. So we've actually set it up to a place where we've got a monitoring tool sitting on, on their product, right? When we notice an anomalous piece of data, we automatically create a ticket on that customer's behalf, assign it off to a rep that can solve it, and then we go solve it. Then we reach out to the customer and we say, hey, you had an incident, but don't worry, we've already solved it. Thanks for being a customer, Right. Like that, that customer experience is phenomenal. Yeah. No, I mean, that's uh, JetRails is built on that principle that, you know, it's proactive web hosting. So I, I'm completely with you, you know, that we, we, we deal with mid-market and enterprise users that need mission critical uh, service and support layers. And so, oh. you know, they, they don't want to be the ones telling us that there's a DDoS attack happening or some, you know, some uh, resource usage uh, spike or, um, you know, or, or some kind of downtime or error happening or whatever other inevitability, right? You know, these, these things uh, can all potentially happen. We catch it. We work on remediation. We alert them and um, and have them in the loop, especially if it's something that they need to make decisions around or uh, or play an active role in or, or have their developers play an active role in and, and we pull the developers into the conversation. It's uh, it's crucial that 
nobody wants to find out the, um, the next day um, or the next week or whatever it was that's going on. You know, the same thing, you know, security incidents. Um, if there's been some sort of intrusion or malware or something, you know, or uh, whatever, you need to know, you know, proactively, <laughs> uh, not not reactively. So um, that's that's really interesting. Uh, but I'm going to turn it over to Ramesh. Um, any favorites among integrations or anything that put a smile on your face? Um, that, that was one we built, and it actually kind of goes back into your whole um, proactive incident management because in today's environments and architecture, it's very rarely the incident and the platform it happens in doesn't necessarily be, aren't necessarily the same. So as a simple example, customer puts an order on your e-commerce site, customer service team's waiting for the order. It has to flow from the e-commerce site to your backend order management system, then has to push it to warehouse. Customer service don't see the order. Well, which system and which integration layer did the order fail in? I'm just, I'm the customer service agent. I do not know. I'm just going to put a general ticket in and say, I can't find an order. So in a typical scenario, it goes to one IT person who may or may not be on one of those systems. And they then spend a couple of hours realizing it's not in their system. The ticket then goes to the next team and so on and so on. One of the use cases we saw with, uh, and I, with, uh, and this is a Zendesk built out of Zendesk was the ticket gets put in, goes into Zendesk. It's put in as a priority ticket because it's, you know, we're missing an order in real time. So it's a priority one ticket. What the uh, integration layer did was took the ticket, pinged it to the five teams that had ownership of that business end to end process across maybe three different systems, for example, via Slack notified them and then automatically, because depending on the priority of the ticket, because it's a priority one ticket, automatically built a set up a conference call in Slack and put all those five individuals on the call at the same time immediately. I love it. Oh, that's how the world should really be working, isn't it? I mean, we do some similar things, but that's snazzy. Um, mm -hmm. That's really because great. It is, it is, it is very you know, good. Yeah. It, it's a real challenge in, uh, you know, in the web hosting site, you know, there can be um, a, in some instances, at least in some parts of the industry, a lot of going in circles because, um, you know, the merchant doesn't know what's going wrong, as you've described. Um, they know that there's an error somewhere. They don't know if it's the web hosting. They don't know if it's the software, the the e-commerce platform. They don't know if it's some integration, some, uh, you know, some JavaScript or API or something failing externally that's stopping something from loading properly. They don't know. They just know it's not working. Um, Correct. You know, so... We run into the same, like our team is even at, at a point where we offer uh, what we refer to as advanced support hours, basically DevOps to not to make changes in a site, but to identify what's going wrong. Because we know in those emergency situations, if the developers haven't figured it out um, and are, are stuck um, and it, we don't believe it to be in the hosting layer that we've proved that out, at the end of the day, the the client just needs it fixed. <laughs> they need to figure out what's going wrong. And so we'll have our engineers dive in and, uh, you know, and, and work on identifying whatever script or issue is causing trouble within the site, um, even when it has nothing to do with the hosting layers. Uh, but, you know, there has to be a meeting of the minds to make that, that happen, uh, that, you know, that's not an automatic trigger typically. So I, I think that, you know, that basically, you know, we, we try to stay in our wheelhouse as web hosts, right? You know, that until the client or uh, or their dev team, you know, flags it as something that they 
mm-hmm. you know, that they need that help with. Yeah. Um, w- again, when it's application layer uh, and not the hosting layers, it's um, it, it's really interesting. I would love to see that particular automation. I think that that should go to more use. <laughs> that that is the great one. And one of the things we tend to talk with clients who talk to us about: okay, once system is now live, how do we support it? You know, and they may have a smaller, more nimble team. And you know, as we just mentioned in an example, you might have three systems just to get your order from you know the website down to your warehouse to ship it. So what we tend to talk about is level, you know, levels of support. And so your typical first level might be somebody in your in your inside your building, but they are not going to be experts across three systems. But they're going to understand your business process of how an order is placed and which systems it needs to go around. And so. They can do the initial troubleshooting that says, okay, the order is missing. Let me look. I know it's going to hit three systems. Let me do a cursory dive into each system. I can't find it. I'm going to raise a ticket and send it to the lease team because they need to look at each system in detail. As a So that's that's your secondary level so of support. Escalation like. path, absolutely. Yeah. But, but based more on business process end-to-end versus just the application layer that you think it's going to hit. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and... You know, in, in a lot of cases, rather than having 10 people running in circles all at once, um, being able to have a methodology of proving things out, that that's always nice. Uh, exactly. You know, that it, it's resource conservation, you know, at, at its best. And I suppose it's from a, a scientific perspective, um, you know, you have your hypothesis, okay, you know, Occam's razor, you know, the simplest is usually... Uh, going to be correct. And so it's probably here. Nope. No, it's not. No, it's probably. No. <laughs> and and yeah, you follow exactly. a logical path, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, spinning over. I was just looking at someone's Google Analytics uh, last night, um, late into the night, because that's what I do for fun. And, mm-hmm. um, and they were trying to associate a big jump in traffic from a city that they'd never heard of um, in the United States. Uh, and I'm taking a look at it. And so I dive in and I'm looking at some of the metrics quickly and I identify, okay, this is all Linux users with 800 by 600 pixel uh, screens and all using the same Google Chrome browser. Okay, so this is bot traffic. And I take a look at the city, um, which you know they thought might've been in Ohio. It turned out it was, it was uh, out in, in Oregon and um, identified it was a data center that belonged to Amazon. So it's like, okay, so now I know, you know, somebody was using a server there and, you know, and figured out pretty quickly what this anomaly was, um, you know, but they had been scratching their heads looking at this. They had no idea what, what was going on and why there was this bump in traffic. And of course I saw that the bounce rate was, you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty much a hundred percent on, on that track, you know, that there were telltale signs that it wasn't legitimate, but you know, something you need to have that path of who do you go to, and if you know, if I had an issue, you know, that might have gone to someone else to uh, to take different action about. But um, it, it's uh, it, it's about getting things where they need to go when when they need to uh, in order to be effective. So you know, we've covered a lot today i could for sure keep going because <laughs> uh this this is uh i think this is really interesting for for those in the industry any other e-commerce specific um integration points that, that either of you run into a lot or, or think are particularly interesting um i think some of the most common um that i've run into including in previous lives in the industry 
had to do with um, point of sale, ERP, and accounting. Um, I know we touched a little bit on, um, you know, like Amazon and uh, certainly there are marketplaces out there, eBay, now, you know, some that, that act as marketplaces like Walmart, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anything that, that either of you think uh, that we didn't touch on or, or that's particularly um, unique or special or might be up and coming? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll start. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll start. I'll start. Then uh, Nate can add a lot more detail around probably what's coming up. Uh, but one of the areas I think we find a lot of um, conversation, shall we say, is what we call the last mile, which is pretty much getting the order down to your warehouse to ship it. And usually the reason that comes up in conversation is because no two warehouses integrate the same way. There isn't a you know, there's a standard order type that needs to go down from an integration perspective, but there isn't a standard integration layer that every warehouse plugs into. So, you know, it's everything from a flat file through to an open API through to, you know, you name it, EDI, in fact. And so it typically that last mile can get challenging because a lot of the time it's a third party managed relationship for a, three, a third party distribution center. And so they, you know, they do you plus all these other customers. So they are not going to change their integration layer just to accommodate you just because you bought a brand new snazzy, you know, Magento or Shopify website and you got an open API. Well, good. They've got all these other customers and they are really not too concerned, not too concerned, but they're not going to, you know, change their entire architecture just to accommodate you. So that's one of the areas I'd say a lot of businesses don't realize can be an issue. And we spend a lot more time talking about what, you know, what internally we call the last mile of, of the orders journey, basically. Yeah, I mean, as I would say the, the biggest interest right now is in that same, how do I get from orders over here to actually shipments in transit that my client can understand, you know, where they are in any given time in this in this flow, right? Has it been shipped yet? Has it been ordered? Blah, 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 blah. And the client needs to be able to understand that at any given point, right? And any any agent working with them needs to be able to understand that too. Um, so we see a lot of a lot of interest there, a lot of traction there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that some have customized workflows and uh, you know, I, on a recent episode of the podcast, we talked about um, post-purchase. Uh, experiences that the customers have and solutions to improve that, including better order tracking apps and things that uh, that improve that experience for the shopper. And I imagine even on a higher level that there are probably things that you can do to better notify the customer about, oh, you know, your order, you know, not just that it's shipped, but, oh, you know, should be arriving tomorrow or it's been delayed in transit, that there are certain things that you can do uh, as part of a larger integration, as part of a you know of larger workflows, but just to tweak things to be more customer centric, um, you know. So b- back to triggering things and, and automation, and um, and not just getting things from point A to point B, but enhancing them. Yeah, I mean granularity exactly. is huge there. I think like being able to say, okay. Um, this order has now arrived. Do we send a text message to the, the client and user, ask them how it was, maybe market something else to them, right? Hey, thanks for being a loyal customer. Hope you enjoyed your package. Here's a 10% coupon for the next thing. So being able to exactly like you said, right? How do we how would we do that normally? Okay, maybe we'd estimate or maybe like Karan job would tell us once a day all the orders that came in yesterday and we'd be able to ping the next day, right? But that's still, you know, we get that delay, right? 
sooner you can capture this stuff, the sooner you can react. The more engaged you can be, the better the customer experiences. Well, and, and also if you're multi-channel, if you've got inventory in more than one place, if you're waiting for once a day to realize that you know you already sold out of that uh, off the shelf in your retail store or your sales team made a wholesale, you know, took a wholesale order on that and that's now out of inventory, but your website still sold it or it's still, I mean, I hope it didn't still sell on Amazon because Amazon's not very forgiving about that. Uh, <laughs> they do not want to hear that. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, now you're keeping reserves in different places to make sure that you don't oversell. So, you know, you're not selling when you could be because you're holding on to it just in case there's an order from another channel. It gets when you don't um, have things happening closer to real time, it does create a lot of friction overall. Uh, in the process. And I think that there's, uh, there's something to be said for that as well. Yeah. And if you, if you think about it, more than 60% of households in the U S have Amazon prime membership. So if you're in the e-commerce business, you're, you know, subconsciously to some extent competing with the Amazon experience. And so if you can't do, you know, next day delivery, you can't save on shipping, you can't have order fulfillment process seamless in the background. If you're waiting days, you know, the, the Amazon, for better or for worse, from an e-commerce experience is pretty much the baseline at this point in time, unfortunately, unfortunately, in this industry. And so that's, you can't, comp- you know, you're not going to compete on price and things of that nature, but you are going to have to compete with the customer experience. And how do you really differentiate your experience from the next, from the next e-commerce business? Yeah, and I totally, I mean, I think that's, that's exactly where the market is, right? We have so much market pressure these days in e-commerce that, you know, just the slightest thing. My page takes twice as long to load as the Amazon page. Well, you lost the deal, right? So I'm, I'll go to Amazon, right? I'm a consumer. Um, same thing with like, hey, this thing said it would be here tomorrow and it's going to take a week. Well, Amazon can get here in two days. I'll cancel the order and whatever, right? Um, so like at the same time, I actually had this experience the other day. I ordered something. It said one to three days shipping, right? I get the tracking. It's It's a week out, right? And I'm like, I, you know, maybe I would have gone to the store and bought that. And that's not a great experience. I probably won't go back to buy from those guys. But if in real time, they could have pinged UPS and done a real time, how long is it going to take to get to Nate's house? Yeah, Cool. We know exactly. Boom. Done. And I get a real time answer. And I know, and I, maybe I get a tracking number as soon as the order gets made. So they've already created and shipped it on my behalf and I can track that anytime. Yeah. And, and oh, the technology oh, the is, is getting easier. I, we've, I had, I think actually one of our earlier episodes on the podcast touched on that, on um, being able to properly estimate delivery um, right there in the site when somebody's going to have it in their hands. Because again, you know, Amazon has and others have set these standards, but people want to know. Exactly. And, and in that example of Nate's, if, even if it was going to be late from when you ordered it to when you know, the tracking number comes in, if they had reached out to Nate and said, we are really sorry, it's going to take longer than we thought, here's a 10% discount coupon for your next purchase. I suspect that would have you know, gone a little bit of ways towards you know, having a happier consumer experience. Yeah. And look, exactly. when you place the order through Amazon, they're paying that 10% or, or more to Amazon anyway. And they basically lose you as a customer because when you're shopping on Amazon, you're going to see everyone else's product. Maybe Amazon themselves have made a knockoff of it. Um, maybe you've got, you know, com- you know, not only competitors, but, at, but, you know, true knockoffs, uh, representing as if they're your product, it, it's the wild west. Um, and you don't get the same data back. You don't have the same actionables for marketing to those shoppers. 
Um, so it, it's really, really important to keep the relationships with consumers flowing through your own e-commerce channels. Um, yeah. That's vital to brand success that uh, as much as Amazon is a very important channel to a lot of businesses, it's not a particularly safe channel. Um, you know, you don't own your, uh, you know, your footprint on Amazon. Amazon does. You can, you know, somebody leaves some bad reviews and next thing you know, you're kicked out and who are you going to call at Amazon? Um, it, it is not easy to get reinstated, even though you did absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, it's um, and the reality is, yeah. and, and the reality is to build something like what Amazon has built is it's hard, right? It's it, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of connectivity there. But with tools like Workado, you can actually take on little pieces and say, hey, this is the first metric that matters, right? We're going to build an automation around it. Cool. As we keep growing, right, we take on little chunks of automation and we keep iterating, right? And that's the kind of goal of Workado too, right? Again, mm -hmm. not just one integration, but like let's help you integrate and automate holistically as you need to. More use cases will come up, right? And should be easy well, to price us out like a standard price the whole way up. It's a growth plan. You invest in setting these things up and getting them working. You don't really want to change them too frequently. The same with web hosting. It's infrastructure that um, it's not something that, that people seek to do more often than they need to. They do it when there's a catalyst, when they need to, when it makes sense. And you want to be set up for growth. Um, you want to be set up for success. Look, anybody that's started a small business knows that you hit thresholds. Every business is, of course, a little bit different, but your needs as a business change when you get to 10 employees, when you get to 50 employees, when you get to that, um, that from an HR perspective, from a middle management perspective, from, I mean, so many, from an IT perspective, everything continues to change and it's expensive to keep shifting. Um, in some cases, it, it's more cost effective to spend a little bit more and set yourself up for for growth, um, you know, with vendors that you can grow with and systems that you can grow with, than um, than to necessarily be too short sighted on it. And again, to to deliver best in class experience to uh, to to really be able to be a, a top contender in your space. So, um, I think we've we've really done a pretty thorough job here i'm i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna say we wrap while, while we're at, at a high point here um gentlemen any final thoughts um before we go any prognostications or anything new coming down the pike any words of wisdom that we we didn't touch on uh, ramesh um, i'll ask you to to jump in first because uh, I, I think um, mostly just to do that to nate um before we go because he's been such <laughs> yeah. a good sport <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him get the last word. There you go. There you go. Uh, I'd say the only thing in the e-commerce space specifically, it's just getting harder and harder. We used Amazon as the baseline example. I'd suggest, especially with COVID now, there's a lot of business that's moved online. And so to me, the differentiate, if you like, to your online experience has to be personalization. People aren't going to a store anymore for you know various reasons. And so if, if everybody's shopping in the same space online, how do you differentiate your business from the next business online? And to me, is you need to try and replicate as much of that personal face-to-face -face experience as you can in an online environment. And whoever kind of succeeds in that the best, whether it's through endless aisle inventory, omnichannel, all those kind of concepts, or you know just making the whole shopper's online experience that much more personable, 
I think those are the those are the businesses that are, that will come out of 2020 with a, with a clear differentiator over their rivals. Yeah, I and I I'd agree with that. I think that you know as e-commerce continues to grow, right, we'll see more and more companies and software companies, especially, go out and build their own integration and automation systems, right? Because there is going to be a growing need there. Um, so the question becomes like. Do you manage that yourself or do you let somebody else manage that for you, right? As you grow, probably makes more sense to manage it on your own. Come talk to us. We're here. Awesome. All right. Well, to our listeners, thank you as always. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, happy selling. And we'll be bringing you lots more great content like this very soon. So make sure to stay subscribed wherever you listen to great podcasts like this uh, or, or watch great videos like this. And uh, we'll be back at you soon. Thanks for listening to the JetRails podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post full videos of most episodes on the JetRails YouTube and Facebook channels. You can find links at jetrails.com forward slash podcast. Have questions about an episode? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover in the future? We're at JetRails on LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you want to sponsor this podcast? Sorry, but we're committed to ad-free listening. We are, however, always looking for guests that our listeners will benefit from. And don't forget to like the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. It's a small ask, but it's a big help. We appreciate it. And more importantly, we appreciate you.